Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Great to be back with all of you again this week. I hope, especially you fathers out there, had a great Father's Day weekend this past weekend. And, you know, to reflect on the role of parents. And as a father of three, uh, there is no greater blessing in the world than uh, to be a father and to raise them in a country like the United States of America. And um, the times continue to be stressful. And uh, obviously our kids have, uh, depending on what level they're at, either way, the last two years have been sort of a time warp as they've uh, lost a lot of the ability to uh, engage and have normal milestones that they had during those years. But now things have hopefully hit the ground running for all of you. And I know this first Father's Day now back out of the doldrums of the pandemic has just been a wonderful time. Uh, my family took me out to to see Maverick, and I recommend it highly to all of you patriots out there and anyone interested in a sequel to Top Gun. Uh, it, uh, again, was not only a fantastic patriotic movie, but, you know, you, you gotta you got to give credit where credit's due, where, where it often is want in Hollywood that too often just looks at the payday. And this movie told Chinese billionaires and others to take a hike as it put forth an unapologetic patriotic theme, a moral one about the goodness of America, about American exceptionalism and all the things that we do in this country. I enjoyed it. Wonderful Father's Day. And also remember my own father. Practiced medicine with him for a few years until before he became ill. And uh, as I talk about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, um, and in many ways he was not only my hero and gave me the greatest blessing I could ever have, which was to be born in the United States just a few months after he escaped Syria and came to the U.S. with my mother. And I had the good fortune of being able to grow up here, join the Navy, and lived here to tell you all about it. And had they stayed in Syria, God knows what would have happened. Now, Obviously, as with any heroes and any relationships in our life, there's always challenges upon challenges and others. And uh, I talk about those in my book. And, uh, uh, you know, many immigrants, and I can tell you especially as the son of a Arab-American immigrants, these challenges of understanding what Westernism is, what equality is, what... Uh, uh, the principles of a reformed interpretation of Islam in the 21st century. It's one thing to talk about them de novo or in vitro <laughs> in a laboratory of mind, and then it's another to see them practiced. And yeah, that was the challenge. It's very interesting that many times some of the smartest, most modern-thinking Muslims, Arabs in the world often practice one thing and preach another. 
and that was one of the challenges I had with my own father uh, but that's for another time and you can read about it in the book um, now there's other many happenings happening uh, across the planet that I wanted to talk about but one of the things is the continued the continued whitewashing of political Islam, of radical Islam, of the Muslim Brotherhood of Islamists. And uh, the New York Times, conveniently, as the Daily Caller said, leaves out major details in a piece condemning right-wing violence. And as Brian Babb uh, pointed out in the New York Times, they accuse the political right of being responsible for the majority of extremist violence in the United States and a few weeks ago failed to note that the majority... The majority of cited incidents were not politically motivated. The New York Times uh, cited Anti-Defamation League, ADL, reports to back up its assertions while not providing any context on how the reports were composed. The ADL used many cases to build its reports where the motivation for the murders listed is not necessarily ideological. For example, with 212 of 443 murders by extremists in the past decade were classified as non-ideological, according to the ADL. And the American political right, quote, they said, has a violence problem, and that has no equivalent on the left, unquote. <laughs> the newsletter reads, coming in the wake of Buffalo mass shooting, that the newsletter heavily cited multiple ADL reports of right-wing extremist violence, and murder over the past decade, including white supremacist violence and anti-government activist violence. And then to see a tweet from the New York Times about its article, The Right Violence Problem, most extremist violence in the U.S., according to the New York Times, comes from right-wing extremists. Data shows. So you'd think it'd be pretty clear, huh? They said 10 victims in the Buffalo, in Buffalo this past weekend are now part of this toll from a tweet a few weeks ago. One of the things that troubles the Daily Caller writer with the ADL reports is that they simply compile statistics and then make assumptions based on those statistics. And a retired special agent to the FBI, an expert in criminal and counterterrorism investigations, Robert Chacon, told the Daily Caller News Foundation that Chacon and many of the murders have an unclear motive, he said, because motive is not strongly looked at in many murder cases. White supremacist killings accounted for 244 of the 443 murders by extremists over the past decade, according to ADL's Murder and Extremism in the U.S. 2021 report that the New York Times cited. However, the ADL noted that 35% of the reported white supremacist killings were ideologically motivated and the rest were tied to traditional criminal activities or crimes where the motive was not clear. For example, Sean Lickfuss, who reportedly vandalized synagogues using white supremacist graffiti and distributed neo-Nazi flyers, allegedly killed his wife in a domestic violence dispute in August 21, according to ADL report. The case was included in the total accounting of extremist violence. So, Domestic violence by somebody with hate literature or hate beliefs becomes a hate crime? I'm not exactly sure that that bears the scientific evidence. In a separate case, 
Daily Caller goes on to note that four alleged members of the New Mexico Aryan, Bro Aryan Brotherhood engaged in a shootout inside of a vehicle in May 2021, leaving only one survivor who was arrested on a weapons charge, according to the ADL report. This incident was added to the total accounting of extremist violence. In another case, local white supremacist gang Fresnik's member Brandon Engelman killed another member in April 21, with whom he had long been feuding. So this is intra-gang violence, according to the ADL report. Engelman's case was also included in the county of extremist murders. So simply because someone is a white supremacist and commits an act of violence does not mean that the act was an act of extremism or terrorism, Shakan noted. Obviously, it's notable that these folks are killing each other or killing their families, but that does not make it an act of terrorism, which is defined as a political act of violence, hate, murder, to an act of political outcome. Now, if they're killing their wife or killing each other, that would not qualify as terrorism, would it? Counting non-ideologically driven acts and acts such as domestic violence in these reports skew the results and could present an inaccurate conclusion. Chacon goes on that the New York Times using the ADL statistics without providing the caveats and context is more than a little misleading, but that exactly is what the public has come to expect from the New York Times, Chacon continued. Another example was the Waukesha parade attack in December 21, where Daryl Brooks drove his SUV through a Christmas parade, killing six people and injuring 60 more. That wasn't included in their report. From the ADL, Brooks called for violence against white people in the since-deleted Facebook posts, according to the New York Post. The New York Times newsletter comes following pro-abortion extremists attempting to firebomb a pro-life office in Madison, Wisconsin. The phrase, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either, was spray-painted onto the building. And the ADL would not respond to the Daily Caller's inquiries. Now, what is amazing to me is that it isn't patently obvious to all, everybody that the ADL has simply become a wholly-owned subsidiary of the Democratic Party that ultimately it will paint and fill between the lines whatever it feels necessary to enact its objectives. Long before President Trump was in office, I was critical of the ADL and testimony and elsewhere that back after 9-11, in my testimony to Congress in 2011 and 2013, 2015, that many of these far-left democratic operative groups like the ADL are asleep when it came to Islamist groups, Muslim Brotherhood, radicalization. They would not want to make any connection, even though the ideological connection in which so many mosques have not even any diversity of textbooks, but the only textbooks and sermons and liturgy that they have on their shelves are interpretations, translations, and otherwise of radical operatives and historic icons like Sayyid Qutb, so-called father of Al-Qaeda, Hassan al-Banna, the father of, Has of uh, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood, and others. And yet, when the Boston bombers had trafficked in and out of the Islamic society of Boston, 
when Nidal Hassan had been in and out of various Muslim organizations, when many of these individuals had back and forth demonstrated that they were part of the conveyor belt of political Islam, anti-Americanism, and others that then led them into the Islamist movement globally that did not want to be addressed by the EDL. But now they're slapping on connections willy-nilly of extremist groups in the United States into acts of violence. And one of the points I've made numerous times is that if you look at the numbers, if it's 30-40% of the acts of terrorism are committed about white supremacism, the way to look at those statistics more appropriately would be to look at it in proportion. So if the Caucasian or white community is whatever percent of the population it is, Christian population, 80% of America, white population, 60-70% of that, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but to say that it's 50% of the terrorism is extremism from that group is still not a fair proportional assessment of the amount of radicalization within communities. When one per, less than 1% of the population is Muslim, 4 million Muslims in America out of 350 million Americans, a little over 1%, when 1% is Muslim and that included double-digit percentages of radicalization and Islamist-inspired terrorism, you realize that the numbers that matter are the fact that a quarter of the world is, is Muslim and that ultimately the threat to the West is related to all of the various touch points of Americans, of American security, foreign policy, domestic policy, immigration, and otherwise. So we have to be consistent, but yet the ADL, long before they became such a belligerent far-left organization that was simply now became political operatives to attack President Trump, to attack conservatives wherever they can, turn a blind eye to threats against Supreme Court justices, as we see happening in the past few weeks. Even long before that, they demonstrated their predilection for left politics and party politics, rather than really what they set the standard for for decades, as Abe Foxman used to lead them. And I had met many times with Mr. Foxman, an unbelievable gentleman who, uh, yes, was also liberal, but I think as as problematic as many of his associations were with the Democratic Party, I think he adhered more to a little consistency about the ADL being an anti-hate, fighting against anti-Semitism and trying to protect the security of the American and the global Jewish community. Now, Greenblatt and others now that are leading the political operation of the ADL seem to continue to turn a blind eye, but the problem is bigger than that. And I wrote a piece, I wrote a piece in the White Rose magazine that was published on May 16, 2022, and I would ask you to take a look at that and it was entitled, Jewish Leaders Must Counter Islamist Supremacism. 
And when we come back, I want to take you through some of my uh, perceptions of how not only the Jewish community, but how various minorities can come together in America and the West to help modernize American Islam. Is it their role? I'm sure most of you, and as I did for a long time, say, no, it's not their role to do that. But what is a coalition? What is a coalition that would create and defeat hate that exists within various communities, especially within the Islamist radical groups from Iran to Egypt to the United States and Europe? When we come back, we'll talk about that on Reform This. And we are back with Reform This. We're talking about how Jewish leaders can counter Islamist supremacism. And, you know, listen, I opened the piece basically saying the first question any American Jew may want to contemplate asking me, an American Muslim trying to, yes, some would say tilt at windmills, others would say bravely confront radical ideologies, ideologues, and leaders within the Islamic political Islamist community. But the first question they would say, how does this guy have the chutzpah to tell our diverse Jewish communities what we should or should not do vis-a-vis American Muslim communities, especially Islamism and especially anti-Semitism? And anyone who's followed my work and my pleadings in this area of expertise knows that the organization that I helped co-found, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, and then the coalition of Muslim reformers of the Muslim reform movement, we're not delusional. We're fully aware and engaged in the hard work necessary to begin internally towards change and the long overdue reforms within the Muslim consciousness. Again, the road is tough and arduous, And nobody would have guessed at any point that uh, we were going to have a large enough coalition to dissolve the Muslim Brotherhood and make it irrelevant. But we have been growing consistently. We have already begun to even change some of the quasi-blasphemy laws of never say the word Islamism because they think it's terrorism. Never say the uh, political Islam because the faith is what they're trying to criticize. All of these concepts of fake Islamophobia, contrived Islamophobia in order to prevent debate, have begun to melt away because so many Muslims, like the leaders in our Muslim reform movement, have been speaking out and saying, we, Muslims who love our faith, believe that the best form of love is a tough love that fights against and exposes the theocrats of Islamism and political Islam. And we know that most of this work can only be done by Muslims and that nothing short of a revolution after revolution after revolution 2.0, 3.0 against the Islamist establishments, the theocrats, the patriarchs, the autocrats, and the kleptocrats across the planet will eventually defeat political Islam. But we have to start somewhere. And nobody for a second should believe believe that we can right this ship alone. And that's the issue, actually is yes, we'll be Muslims need to be on the head of the spear. But does anybody need to be helping us with that spear? 
Does anybody need to be at least providing a sense of equity? That word equity is everywhere lately, isn't it? Well, equity is not just about identity politics that's skin deep. But equity should be about diverse ideas. That when you bring Muslims on a network broadcast or in a university forum or in a business community discussion, that Muslims have a diverse representation from left to right, from theocrats to secularists, from conservative to liberal. But I can't tell you how absurdly insane and inane it is that how monolithic the Muslim community is when it's represented in corporations, discussions from Google to Twitter to universities from Harvard and the woke to UCLA and Berkeley. It's completely useless and actually is something that demonstrates why the Saudis and the Qataris and the Muslim Brotherhood and other operatives get what the investment is they put in. When you say, why do they put billions into golf, into electric cars and other things that seem to be odd investments for a petro-Islamic society, but they get a return on that, and that's influence, it's a seat at the table, and it's an obliteration of other not-as-wealthy voices like ours in the Muslim reform movement. Our non-Muslim friends, and especially our Jewish community partners, play an invaluable role in our success and failures, especially when it comes down to countering anti-Semitism. You know, we understand that the condition of endemic bigotry against the Jewish community emanates from centuries-old Islamist interpretations of Islam, as well as pan-Arab racial supremacism, to name a few. A few of the root cause afflictions of the majority of almost a quarter of the world's population that happen to be Muslim. But the reality, however, is that the Jewish community's greatest allies within Muslim and Arab populations are, in fact, the modern liberal reformers who stand up within our own faith community and ethnic communities against the anti-Semitic, Islamist, and Arabist demagogues. Because remember, anti-Semitism is not only the theological component, but it's also the Arabist, racist, fascist component. And they must be support. We who fight against both pillars of this anti-Semitism must fight and must be supported and augmented and not marginalized. Because if any of us reformers are going to ever make any headway, the leadership of leading Jewish political and religious organizations must make strategic allies with, yes, eyes wide open, eyes wide open. What do I mean by that? Well, certainly some anti-Islamists, non-Islamists might fake it, might dissimulate what your Islamists are known to do, but they will expose themselves. It'll become obvious, as I've shown so many examples on this program and elsewhere. But that's why the track record is so important, that it can't just be, oh, if they deny the Holocaust, then there are enemies, and if they accept that the Holocaust happened, then they must be our friends. That might be one litmus test, but it's certainly, I know of many non-Holocaust deniers including leadership at the Islamic Society of North America, who recognized and did work with the AJC and others to recognize the Holocaust. But yet, when it comes to political Islam and Islamism, they're simply modernizing Islamism. They are Islamist 2.0, and they still don't want to reform against the supremacism of political Islam and the Islamic State concept, if you will.
So the importance of these right alliances can't be overstated because it provides an important legitimacy to American Muslim groups domestically and abroad and, and contrarily what can, can be a very dangerous sense of complacency when it comes to Islamist dissimulation and their facades of reform. And that's what I was talking about with the ADL earlier. The Daily Caller piece earlier last week, I think, pointed to how politically driven the ADL is, and it really isn't focused simply on countering anti-Semitism because its partners in the Muslim community, many of whom are left of center, by the way, our Muslim reform movement, I'm actually, I think, a minority as a right-of-center conservative, but the principles of equity, diversity, are the same. We believe in countering horrific, heinous ideologies that are anti-Semitic, that come rooted in interpretations of Quranic scripture that are incompatible with modern day and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, in this program, I'm here to tell you that all too often, leading Jewish organizations grossly underestimate the profound impact they have in marginalizing their real allies by lifting up that lowest hanging fruit of our faith community, the Islamists, the Islamist leadership across mosques, across organizations like CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Islamic Society of North America, and others. So when you ask, when you see that the reason of the Muslim Brotherhood or the Diobandi, which is the Indo-Pakistani version of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, like ISNA, Muslim American Society, ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, CARE, MPAC, to name a few, have such a great, greater size audience and bandwidth, it's because they have had a two-plus generation, a 50-year head start in the West. And up until 2017, 2018, the Saudis and every petro economy was, was funding them. And that seems to have shifted, so at least that spigot has dried up a bit, but you plant a poisonous tree and it will have its own sustenance from water within and continue to shed poison here and work with the ascendant for the ascendancy of political Islam. And also beginning as we saw with Khashoggi, and I talked to you about Khashoggi and what the Saudis did with him, but also what the Islamists are doing against the Saudis. So now we're starting to see a lot of this internecine battle that American Jewish communities, Amer American uh, law enforcement and others are not trying to separate who are their allies in these debates and who are their enemies. So if the Jewish community's greatest allies within the Muslim and Arab populations in the U.S. and in the West are in fact the modern liberal reformers who stand up within our own faith and ethnic communities against the anti-Semitic, Islamist, and Arabist demagogues, then they must be supported. So, you know, our goal is, is, is to shed light. It's to shed the antiseptic of sunlight upon the relationships that the especially liberal Jewish organizations make with American Islamists that harms all of our cause of security and fighting against hate, especially anti-Semitism. It is one thing to proclaim that anti-Semitism is pervasive and Jewish leadership must make allies wherever they can, 
doesn't have to be wherever they can. It is, however, quite another to fall for the disinformation and dissimulation of Islamists and refuse to acknowledge that their core ideologies, as they tell groups at the ADL and AJC that they want what exactly they want to hear. It's not even a zero-sum game. In fact, the elevation of Islamists by any leading non-Muslims in the West is just another nail in the coffin of reformers. Please, please don't be deceived. It's important to understand that the deep layers upon which that anti-Semitism is based has theological underpinnings, has cultural underpinnings, historical underpinnings that need to be unraveled thread by thread, debate by debate, and we have people that can sit at the table with these debates and provide that diverse idea and expose expose these leaders for what they are. Go beyond simply their acceptance that the Holocaust happened and start asking them and say, let's talk about chapter 5 in the Quran. Why does the translation say, do not take Jews as friends, Christians and Jews as friends? Why does the translation say, talks about apes and monkeys? Where is that coming from? What does that mean? And I've talked about that in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and that the translations actually are the problem. That the Arabic script is intentionally translated in a heinously supremacist way at times by supremacist sects like Wahhabis and others that then will not allow any other translation and that we as Muslims can only call Qur'an that which is Arabic. The rest is simply human translations into other words versus God's words. But all these things need to be hammered out, need to be discussed and not dismissed and forgotten about. And I've talked about that many a time, publicly and on the debate stage. It's self-evident that supremacists from within a particular faith community will create and exploit hatred toward another faith community in order to collectively rally their own followers against a common enemy. You know, uh, let's, let's even set it aside from Muslim history. Much as Jew hatred was a fundamental part of Christianity before the Protestant Revolution and the Enlightenment separated church and state, predominant interpretations of Islam a much newer religion promoted anti-Semitic imagery, profiling, and demonization of Jews as a tool for its devoted members' own ascension into power among Muslim-majority communities and nations, or in Arabic, the ummah, or the state. So if you're going to have an Islamic state, by definition it must demonize other non-Islamic states, because to be a patriotic Muslim nationalist, you must believe that your national identity is superior to others. And the easiest target for that was the state of Israel, was Jews and other tribes that were Jewish in the historical revisionism that became a lot of what actually happened at the time of the Prophet Muhammad. And I say revisionism, I'm not in any ways dismissing some of the reality of some of the very painful stories that happened with tribes like the Jewish tribe of Ben Qurayza under the Prophet Muhammad. 
But we also need to separate as Muslims history from religion. So there may be things at time in history in the 7th century, not to apologize, but accept them as a grim reality and a state of the world in which there were no secular liberal democracies, there was no universal declaration of human rights, and uh, there are things that we're growing from. Just as America grew from its period of slavery and otherwise, uh, there are things that we as Muslims need to grow from and into new modern interpretations of our own scripture and thus dismissed what is historical versus what are the principles of the faith more deeply. And I believe that the primary cancer from which all hate within Muslim communities against Jews, against Christians, and others, against Muslims like myself who are reform-minded and reject the Islamic State, because it, the hate emanates from the idea of the Islamic State. Understanding this inextricable connection between the demonization of Jews and the advancement of the Islamist movements, whether violent or non-violent, lawful or non-lawful, is to begin the hard work of reform, to begin the hard work of modernizing the interpretations that will make Islam compatible with 21st century mores and Western secular liberal democracies. And we can do better than this, and we should. But we need our partners. We can't do it alone. To think that Muslims can somehow all of a sudden become relevant on global media and, and social media, etc., without any shoulders to help us is absurd. And I would ask uh, the Jewish community to look beyond its partisan bickering that happens back and forth between conservatives and liberals and otherwise, and the ethnocentricity of sort of the approach to American politics, where various Jewish groups will coalesce on one side or the other, but look at what the global impact is of how it approaches political Islam in the United States versus how it will approach it globally. I, I think it should be done the same. Instead of tackling the phenomena head-on, Acknowledging how widespread it is and how increasingly problematic it has become given the recent influx of millions of Arabs and Muslim refugees into the West in Europe and the United States. Many leaders in the Jewish community in line with the media, academia, and the majority of Western governments have preferred sort of this nebulous and generic concept of violent extremism as they develop targeted solutions against the domestic and global threat. But programs that only counter violence address the means of those who threaten the Jewish community while wholly ignoring the ideology or the ends that their movements seek. So the common ideological thread running through the security threat that comes from Islamist extremism is the inherent supremacism of Islamism or political Islam. And as I've testified to Congress many times, our programs should be entitled not countering violent extremism or countering extremism. They should be called countering Islamism to identify the ideology. And the, the, the absurdly hypocritical thing is stepping back to what the ADL just and the left just reported in the New York Times two weeks ago. It wants to connect blindly every act of violence committed by a white supremacist to terrorism. That connection they seem to have no problem making actually in a corrupt, uh, uh, exaggerated, blind way. 
but within Muslim communities, no, it could never be related to the theology that dominates 80 to 90% of mosques. No, 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 no. It has to be. So, that we, it can't be the fact that they're Islamic interpretations. It must just be because they happen to be Muslim. It's absurd. Let me hone in a little bit on sort of the, the split with Arabism and Islamism. The importance of the underlying role of anti-Semitism and its rot in our communities here cannot be overstated. A Pew poll confirmed that anti-Jewish sentiment is endemic in the Muslim world. If Islamists are a plurality, upwards of 30 to 40 percent of the population, as was proven in the Arab Awakening, in elections, etc., the Islamist parties won 30 to 40 percent of the vote. Pan-Arabist supremacists are another 30 to 40 percent, given many of these nations' astronomical rates of anti-Semitism. Thus, you combine them, the Arabist anti-Semitism and the Islamist anti-Semitism, and you're left with 80 to 90 percent plus when their theological and racial hatred is combined. So, you look at across the Muslim world, from Spain, Morocco rather, to India, Indonesia, as many of those nations slide back and forth from one fascism to the other, from secular fascism to Islamist fascism or theopolitical fascism, one has to plainly see how the anti-Semitism, long fueled for generations by Arab dictators like Hosni Mubarak, Zin al-Abdin, Ben Ali, Saddam Hussein, Bashar Assad, Muammar Gaddafi, King Abdullah bin Abdul Aziz. It was all a harbinger of the type of violent and hate-filled societies they were sowing. These predominantly secular fascists and kleptocratic monarchs effectively used national media to propagate anti-Semitism and an us-versus-them mentality. And they demonized Zionism, the democratic Israeli state, in order to lift up pan-Arabism as a Machiavellian tool to keep the masses from questioning their authority. And their media propaganda machines made this happen, and the culture now has persisted with slowly increasing reformers countering this preconceived narrative, but still not being given enough platforms. And the propaganda and the threat continues today. I'll remind you when Al Gore's current TV sold to Al Jazeera and became Al Jazeera America. Thankfully, that flopped despite billions dumped into it by the Qatari royal family. It didn't sell. But you should have seen the horrific stuff being put on there in English, which was even tamer than the stuff still put on that's viewed by 60 million Arabs, if not more, on Al Jazeera Arabic. Our organization actually exposed a horrific documentary recently that back in uh, 2019 that denied the Holocaust. And once it was exposed, we had already copied, preserved the evidence of what Al Jazeera really is, and their reporter, who they claim went rogue, was then fired and dismissed, and they removed it and actually tried legally to have every evidence of it across the planet removed. And we did have to take it down from a number of portals, except Facebook allowed us to continue to post it in fair use. Fast forward to this past year and nothing epitomizes the damaging nature of 
of the silence of various Jewish groups more than the response of Democratic leadership to Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, and Representative Jan Schakowsky, Democrat from Illinois, deceptive combating international Islamophobia act. Talked about this before in our program too, just a few months ago, in which a patently obvious Islamist influence operation was trying to be put into place with, with Shikowski's leadership, along with Omar, as a legislative proposal that sought to establish in the Department of State the Office to Monitor and Combat Islamophobia. I mean, talk about a blas a blasphemy branch in the United States government. A more appropriate name for this proposed legislation would have been the American Caliph Act, sort of put into place a Muslim caliph that would make sure that Islam and Muslims that are theocrats would never be offended. The endorsement of this legislation by groups like the ADL and silence from established groups like the AJC says everything one needs to know about how far off the mark so many American Jewish organizations are from identifying what is the best interests of the American, modern American Muslims and of the United States in general. So essentially, this is all about the left and many, especially the Jewish community organizations like the ADL and AGC and the red-green axis that combines together. We see it at the UN with the Irans and the Venezuelas of the world working together. But just amazing that even segments of our own community don't see that they're doing it here in the United States. And you see radical progressives like Ocasio-Cortez working with Ilhan Omar and Representative Schakowsky. Through 2020 and 2021, too many American Jewish organizations stayed silent as the Black Lives Matter movement used the politics of identity and race in order to stifle free speech and destroy the foundations of America, essentially lifting a page right out of Islamist movements across the Arab world. They rewrote history. They uh, did like the Taliban did in destroying statues of Buddha and destroying foundations of the country in order to rewrite history. The affiliation of BLM leaders with deeply anti-Semitic movements like the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers is hardly a coincidence. And yet how can we Muslims, ready to combat them, do so when so many so-called coalitions marginalize the rational Muslims who are against this hatred and anti-Semitism while the progressivists are lifting up the Muslims that are part of that hatred like Louis Farrakhan and others. And despite all of this, too many American Jews have failed to develop the understanding and conviction to directly confront the anti-Semitism of global Islamist movements and unravel the very fabric and platform through which Islamist leaders spread their ideas. And, you know, I'll conclude by saying, you know, because where anti-Semitism thrives, so too does the eventual threat against every other faith minorities and the very foundations of democracy. And only with these new bold partnerships will we be able to lift up honest allies and confront dissimulators within our chances for security and victory against Islamists, and will that ever be realized? So... Some obvious things that we can do, and I'll leave you with sort of some takeaway tasks. Number one, stop participating in the cover-up of instances of Islamist and anti-Semitic activity. Expose it. Speak the truth. Don't cover it up. 
Number two, educate the Jewish community about the history, nature, and extent of Islamist Jew hatred and the specific threats posed by Islamists who seek to radicalize America's Muslim community. Don't fall for the absurdity that it is somehow anti-Muslim bigotry or so-called Islamophobia to expose the anti-Semitism and separatism of the Islamist leaders that are in mosques across the country or elsewhere and how they work with our enemies abroad in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq and elsewhere, Iran. In fact, accepting Islamists as de facto leaders of what are more ideologically diverse communities is far more anti-Muslim than trying to pretend they don't exist. Number three, monitor and expose anti-Semitic speeches and sermons of radical imams across the country, much of which is already available online by groups like memory, M-E-M-R-I dot org. Number four, ask your local Muslim dialogue partners about what they teach their communities and congregations about who the Jews are or the legitimacy of Israel. Ask them to show you the materials they use to educate their youth about America, about Christianity and Judaism, democracy, women, gays, and other faiths. Number five, ask your local Muslim dialogue partners what they feel about the declaration of the Muslim reform movement. We have a two-page declaration that we put out, and it's very revealing when they tell you that they would not sign it. Find out what they so much don't like about that two-page declaration that basically talks about the equality of men and women, the the free speech with no uh, inhibitions to that free speech and other aspects that are important. Or compare and contrast to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and especially the Cairo Declaration that the Islamist countries signed. And then last, number six, ask if they would allow Jews to address their communities about Judaism, Israel, and other similarities and differences with their faith. This is the reality of where we should be. I, I thank you for humoring me as, as I went through sort of, I think, sort of the, the position statement of why other faiths need to help Muslim reformers and provide us the airspace, the headspace to be at the table not to to win for us but to be at the table to allow us to have the debate because when we have the debate against the islamists they they lose every time every time that's why now it's become harder to debate them because they realize they were having their you know what's handed to them as we debated them in universities from duke to northwestern to university of california all right well again god bless Thanks for being with me this week. Stay strong. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. And spread the word. This is Zudi Jasser, Blaze Radio Podcast. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.